0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 157 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Mike Worthley. Um, Wait a minute, is it Mike? (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's Neil. Neil's on the other end. How's it going? Welcome back.
0: How's things? You have been missed. Have I? Uh, a few of you tweeted at me, and, and numerous. People, were, people were a little concerned they thought I was gone. No, I'm still here, but thank you for this concern.
1: It's not that easy to get rid of you, is it?
0: No, not not yet, not yet.
1: Well, I, I am glad you're back. Thank you. I want to dive right in and talk about HomePod, and I want to do that because, as you and I both know, and our listeners probably should know, that pre-orders are opening up. It's going to start shipping.
0: Yeah. And when you are listening to this, pre-orders will have already begun.
1: Yes. So by the time you're listening to this, you will have already pre-ordered your $350 fantastic HomePod speaker and, and will be waiting it eagerly. So the, the there are a lot of questions out there still. And the questions are things like, you know, does this make sense in a market with Amazon Alexa and Google Home to come in at a $350 price point or Sonos One for that matter? Uh, the questions are, what are the capabilities of this thing and how much or how little is it going to do at launch?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There there are a lot of things that it's, it's interesting because normally with an Apple launch, you would get a keynote that shows off what this thing can do and why you should buy it and then pre-orders open up. Right. And the only demonstration that we've had dates back to last summer. Yep. And that demonstration didn't really show us a whole lot. And the hands-on period that comes after those kinds of demonstrations was similarly not that helpful because it it showed sound quality. It showed some music playing, but you couldn't interact with Siri at that time on the thing. Yeah. And, And so would you agree with me that this is an unusual kind of launch for Apple?
0: It is um, for a number of reasons. It's an unusual product for Apple. Um, I think that it has been pigeonholed by certain segments of the press and the population uh, as a $50 Echo Dot competitor, which I don't think anybody who really knows anything about the product thinks that it actually is positioned as that. Certainly, Apple and its marketing has focused on this as a music player, first and foremost. I mean, it's even in the name, HomePod, just like an iPod music player, you know?
1: Or AirPod, for that matter.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, this is this is being positioned as a music device. Now, how you view that is going to determine how much of a success you think it is. Because is this going to sell more than the $50 Amazon Echo Dot? No. Is it going to sell more than the $100 uh, Echo? maybe. That that might be a, a fairer comparison. Uh, but it's gonna clean up competitors like, you know, Sonos or Bowers and Wilkins or or companies like that that make three, four, five hundred dollar speakers, home, you know, home audio systems. Uh, this thing is gonna wipe the floor with those. But how big is that market? Are 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 those companies selling hundreds of thousands? Are they selling millions? I don't know. Uh, but, I mean, if Apple comes in and takes 40 to 50% of that market, uh, you know, in the first year, which I would say is extremely likely, uh, that's going to do significant damage to those brands uh, in terms of their their home speakers. Uh, the technology in the HomePod, from everything that I've read and, and heard about it, I have not experienced one in person yet, but hopefully soon, the technology is well beyond anything in that price range um, in terms of what Apple is doing and what they're offering um, and the capabilities. Now, the Siri functionality, the home kit, all that, it's a little underwhelming. Yeah, if you compare it to what Alexa is capable of, if you compare it to what Google Assistant is capable of, it's just not there yet. Um, but it does have a powerful A8 chip in it that kind of paves the way for it to do more exciting things in the future. And I fully expect that Apple will continue to update it. I- I've said before, I don't think that this product will be touched for two, maybe even three years, I think that the hardware is going to stay the same. Um, I think that uh, th- this is very much going to be the product without any upgrades for a little while. M- maybe new models, maybe maybe alternative options, uh, but definitely this model that you're seeing right now, um, I think is going to be the one for a while. If so if you're an early adopter, I think you, you don't have to feel like, oh, I got to wait for the second gen with this type of thing.
1: Yeah, this is the second gen. You're going to have software yeah. updates that will keep this fresh for a while.
0: They put some powerful hardware in a device with a limited screen for a reason. Um, this is not this is not something that they are expecting to have a new model of a year later. Um, and Apple's been kind of conscious of that lately too. You think about you know the the the, fir- the first Apple Watch was around for a year and a half before they updated it. AirPods are going on over a year now. Well,
1: and and Series One, the continuance of the first Apple Watch with some refresh, right? That's still going on.
0: Right. So. Um, Apple, I think, it has been conscious of the fact that in the past people said don't buy the first generation. And I don't think you can say that anymore. I think that um, the software – the hardware has become capable enough now that the software improves. And so maybe you want to make for the, wait for the second generation of software, but the hardware is not the problem.
1: You know, the you said some interesting things. I'm going to roll back a little bit to a few sentences ago where you were talking about size of market. In terms of sales and things like that, you're talking about who who this endangers in the market, and I, I agree with you that it it definitely has an impact on Bowers and Wilkins. Uh, I was thinking about Bose, sure, yeah. You know, Bose yeah. has a a huge name. Bose has a huge history, a year, decades long history, uh, going back, gosh, three or four decades or more. To you know, and and their sales volume is historically really high. You know, wh- whether or not people like their sound quality and audiophiles will tell you that they stand for uh, no highs, no lows, it must be Bose. But they have a name. And does this displace Bose is a good question. I think that that as much as you said that Apple is not positioning this as a competitor to the Amazon or the Google products, that it definitely is going to be viewed that way because these are the voice assistant speakers. Sure. You know, we know that the Amazon Echo products definitely don't have the same sound quality, uh, although some of them do have aux jacks so that you can take them to the good speakers. We know that, that the Google Home Max is an attempt at being the good speaker, although it doesn't quite reach what HomePod does according to the one person who's had one hour of experience with it.
0: And it costs $50 more. Yes. You know, it's it's
1: a very real question whether or not this takes out Sonos. Sonos has been an interesting one from the get-go, right? Sonos has a, a smaller audience, but a very dedicated customer base. And so for people who want these kinds of assistants and want a breadth of access to different music sources, um, using a, something like a Sonos or the, the Google Home or the, um, or the Amazon Alexa devices, the Echo devices that allow you to choose from a, a selection of music sources – May give more flexibility than than the Apple HomePod.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, certainly, the HomePod. If you wanted to stream music from another source, you can use AirPlay, but that is not as convenient as using Siri to play music. Um, you know, say what you will about Apple's ecosystem. Play um, Siri Kit should technically allow for third parties to integrate if they wanted to. Uh, at least on the phone, and, and then when they open it up for HomePod, it won't launch. But pr- I, presumably, that functionality is all coming to let third-party developers create their own tools for for HomePod and what have you. Um, so I, I, I see that being resolved in future software updates. Pe- you know, pending um, Amazon Music or or Google Play Music choosing to to support SiriKit. Um, I would hope that Spotify would. I, I think that they have good reason to. Um, one thing that I found interesting, you know, we ran a, a video this week, uh, going in great detail, um, about, uh, HomePod and everything that, that you need to know about it. And one of the things that kind of struck me that I hadn't thought about before, cause again, I haven't seen it in person is how tiny it is. It's only about seven inches tall. Um, it's shorter than a water bottle. It's much shorter than an Amazon Echo, the full size.
1: How wide is this thing? What, what, what would you compare it to, to give us a sense of the scale?
0: It's a little wider than than an Echo, I believe. It's like a shorter and fatter kind of design. Um, But yeah, I mean, picture just a standard water bottle, right? It's shorter than that. So this isn't going to take up a lot of desk space or countertop space or whatever. Um, My wife and I were discussing where we want to put it in our place. And uh, we settled on, for the time being, we're going to try putting it um, in uh, the corner. We, We have a kitchen table that's kind of shoved in a corner. So just half of it's along the wall. Classic New York apartment, right? Right. (laughs) So we don't use, you know, that half the table unless we have guests and we pull the table out. So we decided we just kind of put it over in there in that corner and the corner is kind of rounded off. So it would help sound flow into the room and help fill the room and stuff like that. So we're going to try it there. I currently have, um, as longtime listeners will know, I'm a big AirPlay fan. Uh, I currently have an Airport Express um, plugged into a Logitech boombox on top of my kitchen counters, uh, cabinets uh, up high, and it's cool because you you can't see. There's you know it's high ceilings here in New York. You can't see the uh, speaker or the Airport Express or all the wires or anything like that. It's pushed back against the wall, but it's up so high that when I stream music to it, it fills the room. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe I would replace my Logitech there and put the HomePod there, but then I can't interact with the screen on top of it and stuff like that. So maybe that's a better spot for a cheaper AirPlay 2 speaker when those start hitting the market or something. Um, But for now, I just have AirPlay up there. Uh, I'm excited for AirPlay 2 to start coming. (laughs) Unfortunately, for some reason, the uh, HomePod is not going to ship with AirPlay 2, which boggles my mind because Apple just put out the first beta of iOS 11.3 yesterday and it has support for AirPlay 2 and it it works on the Apple TV 4th gen. So why it's not working on the HomePod, I don't know. Let me speculate. Dot
1: three that we're getting the betas of will release after the HomePod arrives at people's doorsteps.
0: Yeah, they're saying iOS eleven point three is coming out this spring, and they just told us about it in January. So we may have a lot of betas <laughs> of iOS eleven point three.
1: Yes. So it'll it'll this thing will ship. This thing will pre-order. It'll ship and it'll ship and arrive. And when that update hits, then it will gain AirPlay two.
0: But then when do the AirPlay two speakers start coming out? This is just killing me, man. They
1: are going to come out um, without saying too much, much later, right? This is what yep. I asked at CES. I went I around know. to all of the different stereo guys, and I was talking about this with with Mike. You know, I went to Denon, I went to Marantz, I went to. Um,
0: is that how you pronounce the company, Denon? I thought it, I thought it might be like Denon. Some people
1: say Denon. I, I say Denon. Okay. And and Denon and Marantz are actually owned by the same corporate parent. You know, but I went around to the the Harmon Carden Group and and things like this, mm-hmm. who of course now went by Samsung. And the answer is, they they all say without saying too much that they will support AirPlay two as soon as Apple gets it ready. Which is about as much of finger pointing as you can ever ask anyone to give. Because you know the first cardinal rule of working with Apple is that you never blame your partner.
0: Well, how many how many of these companies you know heard the AirPlay two announcement? By the way, last June, so we're we're at seven months since it was announced. And how many of them started rubbing their palms together going, ooh, holiday sales, new speakers, we'll get some AirPlay 2 options out there? I don't know, only because
1: the original AirPlay didn't work as a big mover. It didn't? It's a function that's there, but it did not drive speaker sales. And It was everyone, kind of a slow burn, though. It was kind of Apple a slow hoped burn. that it would, right?
0: You know, AirPlay has been around for a long time, but it used to be known as, um, what was it called? Uh,
1: well, there was AirTunes preceding Air- that.
0: AirTunes. But AirTunes became AirPlay. It was the same thing. Um, More or less. AirPlay became the branding when the Apple TV came out with the with video streaming of it. Prior to that, it was just AirTunes. But you'd got AirTunes on... Well, there
1: was AirPlay that was AirPlay audio before right. the Apple TV thing yeah. happened. And the, the original partners were Bowers & Wilkins, Denon, Morantz, uh, Den and Marantz, uh JBL, which is a part of the Harman Kardon family, Uh, Philips, Philips had it with some of their products. There there were like six to eight of these original partners for AirPlay when it launched for audio speakers. And none of them had wild successes with it. iHome was one of them as well. And part of the problem was that at that time, it added $100 to your retail cost.
0: Right, yeah. The licensing fees killed it.
1: It's not just the licensing, the hardware requirements. Because you had to all of a sudden add Wi-Fi into a speaker.
0: Sure. I, I think that they improved on a lot of that over the years. AirPlay was, Airplay was a slow burn. I'm not going to sit here and say that it was a tremendous success. But as somebody who actively looked for AirPlay speakers, um, the the couple of years leading up to the AirPlay 2 announcement, there were a lot more options on the market than there had been previously. Which showed that it wasn't quite a dead technology if it never really caught on in the way that anybody hoped that it would, especially if you're an Apple fan. But, I mean, for years, the only way you could get it was an Airport Express.
1: Well, I was in Costco over the weekend, and there were two Yamaha products in the Costco shelves. They had a receiver, and they had a sound bar with subwoofer. Mm -hmm. And both of them claimed AirPlay Airplay compatibility. That's what I'm saying. And so, if here's my hypothesis. If AirPlay 2 requires no new hardware and is a software update, essentially,
0: Well, it's supposed to be for some manufacturers, according to Apple, but will your manufacturer support it?
1: Well, if it's a software update and your manufacturer is still maintaining their Apple dev license, which they must be if they're selling AirPlay because they have to pay pay MFI fees on what they sell, then it makes sense for them to update it for new products as opposed to uh, existing products on the market.
0: Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you may already have invested – like me. I have a receiver – um, I have a speakers from a company called Knox NOCS that I'm pretty sure went out of business, but they have AirPlay in them. And then I have two AirPort Expresses. And I don't even know that Apple's going to update the AirPort Express for AirPlay, too. Probably not. I'd say unlikely. Because they want to sell me a HomePod for $350. And I'm going to buy one, but.
1: And because they disbanded the unit that would even do that, I know. right? The, the last thing that AirPort got touched on was perhaps a security update. Yeah. And that's the one guy keeping the lights on?
0: <sighs> yeah. You know, I've asked Apple multiple times, hey, any chance of, uh, you know, airports getting update for AirPlay 2? Nothing but silence. And and I think that's where where some of the frustration for the manufacturers are too, because they're saying, hey, when can we get that AirPlay software? And nothing but silence. Um, And I have a Denon or Denon receiver um, that has AirPlay 1. Uh, The good news is, AirPlay 1 will continue to work. It's not going to stop working. The bad news is you don't get the features that I want, which is Siri and HomeKit integration with it, and the ability to stream to multiple speakers from an iOS device. Now, if you don't don't know this, here's a pro tip for those of you listening. Uh, If you have any AirPlay speakers, you can AirPlay to multiple speakers from a Mac. Um, I thought everybody knew this, but I actually found out recently that uh, somebody who works at Apple Insider did not know, so I had to show them how to do it. But you can select multiple devices on your Mac within iTunes and stream music to it. Yeah,
1: that was one of the new hires, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Um, No comment. Uh, But you can also do it on an iOS device currently with some third-party apps, but they are not very good, so...
1: What I've always done was I used to use a um, Rogue Amoeba application from the iPhone to control iTunes and then have iTunes then control the multiple Mm -hmm. speakers.
0: Did the same thing a lot when I had people over parties and stuff. Could manage the music that way. Adjust volume in each room. Super cool.
1: And – AirPlay 2 makes a ton of sense for receiver manufacturers who've classically had zones, right? Zone A and Zone B or Zone 1 and Zone 2 for different speakers around the house. Yeah. So to be able to incorporate that and have whole house audio makes a, a good amount of sense, especially if you're already on board with AirPlay. Now, the from the other side of the fence, you know, Google Chromecast Audio has done whole house audio for ages. Yes. And has been the most affordable way to get whole house audio. So, you know, it, it's it's sort of a push-pull thing. Which which side of the fence are you going to go with and what's going to work with the most number of people's phones and and or the most number of people's phones who happen to be already your target market customer?
0: Here, here is my hope, and I think this is a realistic hope. Unlike a lot of my hopes, which will never, ever come to be and I'll just be depressed for the rest of my life, I think this one could happen, and I'll explain to you why. I hope that AirPlay 2 spec uh, gets opened up and gets basically... Uh, For anybody that wants to be a hobbyist or uh, do stuff with it, can do stuff with it as they choose. And here's why I think that's going to happen, because Apple is already doing it with HomeKit and AirPlay 2 integrates into HomeKit. So I'd have to imagine there has to be some shared code base there. And so there should be an opportunity for people to write applications... For devices or, uh, you know, if you wanted to have hobbyist hardware like a Raspberry Pi or something, um, I would hope that you would be able to just kind of roll your own AirPlay 2 speakers, you know, like like I've done with uh, my Logitech boombox. Bring your own stuff, plug it in, it connects to the network, it works with HomeKit, it's ready to go.
1: Tough call. And I say that in light of Tim Cook's quote from Canada, where he was speaking. And he said that launching first-party products like Echo and Google Home and then licensing Alexa and Google Assistant to third parties seems counterintuitive to him. His quote was, competition makes all of us better, and I welcome it, but if you're trying to both license something and compete with your licensees, this is a difficult model. And so they are making a first-party speaker they are going to sell you know they they've licensed out airplay 2 right. to third parties clearly homepod is going to re- maintain an advantage over those for some things right well the
0: hardware is what sells it airplay 2 does not sell the homepod i agree it's the siri integration it's the sound it's 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 a whole bunch of factors
1: now when you mention homekit we know that the homepod acts as the homekit hub just like an ios device or the apple tv does
0: uh, an iPad can, but an iPhone cannot.
1: Right. Yeah. I, um, I'm i hopeful that it works a lot better than my Apple TV 4 has in practice.
0: Refinery29 had an article today. They, they spent about an hour with the HomePod, and they said that one of the things they liked about it was that you didn't have to be as loud to invoke it as you do sometimes <laughs> with your phone. Um, which...
1: Well, so the, the, the problem is, you know, if you're playing media... And you need to suddenly speak to it. You you sometimes, you know, the natural inclination is to shout at the thing over the media that's being played. Right, yeah. And the the interesting trick here is that if you're using the beam-forming microphones properly, then... You don't need to. You should be able to hear me say something without having to have me shout over the media. You know, and this is a real problem when I was using Amazon Alexa to control a, a receiver for a TV with speakers in wall and in ceiling you know the volume is booming and you're trying to tell it to turn down the volume and uh, it didn't quite get it all the time right so the hope is that HomePod will be able to manage that
0: i'm very excited about the HomePod um very excited for the quality of the speaker uh for the size of it for the capabilities of it i have i was never really a big user of Siri until i got an apple watch and that really changed it for me uh it just made more sense on my wrist and i think having a smart speaker as somebody who's never owned a smart speaker. I, I've never owned Amazon or Google home or any of that stuff. Um, I, I don't really care much about having it read me the news. Um, I don't really care much about, uh, you know, having it tell me the weather. I'm not, I'm, I don't know. I just don't really care about that kind of stuff. I basically want to use it to listen to music and I want to be able to talk to it, to have it play music. And I am hopeful that, um, because I'm not an Apple Music subscriber, that it will play nicely with iTunes Match, because that's the way I handle it. Uh, As I talked about on the podcast before, Siri does struggle with that That when I went on a run a few months ago and told it to play the album Outrage Is Now, and it kept interpreting it no matter how many times I said it as outrageous. Outrageous. Yes. uh, (laughs) They need to fix that kind of stuff, but... uh,
1: not only— Well, and Refinery says that they've done a lot of work on having it recognize the, the differences in those kinds of titles and things like that. The question is whether or not that will reflect with your iTunes match library as opposed to the um, just the Apple Music service. Yeah,
0: it's all that, and it's the HomeKit integration integration. But not just the HomeKit controls, but the fact that it is now a part of HomeKit that I can tell. So it. what can
1: you do with it? What, what HomeKit stuff can it do besides being the hub and besides being another avenue to turn things on and off?
0: So what you can do is assign certain speakers as part of HomeKit with AirPlay 2. So this isn't just a HomePod thing. This is an AirPlay 2 thing. But basically you say, you know, hey, you know who? I won't say it so all my devices don't go off. But hey, you know who? play this album in the kitchen, and then that speaker goes on.
1: And so it'll choose the speaker that's been associated with the kitchen you, room. In you name the speaker, you put
0: it in a room, you tell it where you want that. to And music you can control play.
1: your volume from home from the home mm-hmm. app. Is that the, the, that thing?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So you, you, it just becomes another accessory as part of your connected home, but it also allows you to control your connected home. So, you know, you could have a HomePod in the bedroom, one in the kitchen, and one in the living room, and you could say, you know, play this album in the living room, Um, and then, I mean, I haven't used it, so in theory it works. Uh, and then, and then it just accesses from Apple music or your iTunes library starts playing it on the speaker you want, no need to touch anything, no need to fuss around with anything.
1: Um, yeah, that's, that's the same kind of experience that Google is doing with Chromecast audio at this time, which is a good experience. Although, um, you know, setting that up or managing the volume on those kinds of things is, is probably easier from the home app than it is from the Google home app. But it's 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 that kind of experience for whole house audio and sending things to different sources, different different receivers.
0: There's a lot of people that that are disappointed with the HomePod based on the price and the fact that not all features are going to be available at launch. But um, I'm I'm pretty excited. I, I think it sounds like a good value to me for what they're offering based on you know, when you compare it to what's on the market. Um, and I'm not, like I said, I don't really care about having, having Siri tell me a joke or whatever. So it, like, who cares? Like how much do you really need to have your home personal assistant talk back to you? I don't care about that stuff.
1: So the, it, it's interesting. I was looking at the different uses of this thing and, and, and this, this space in general in terms of voice assistant speakers and the predominant use has been music mm-hmm. and that's true across amazon alexa and also across the google home mini that by far and away people use them to do music first the timers is the second biggest mm-hmm. use timers and reminders and then at a distant third it's the, um, the the usefulness for controlling things in the home like your philips hue light bulbs
0: all of which home will do out of the box
1: right and but but that third use is the kind of thing that's taken a while to ramp up across all sure, of these yeah, platforms yeah. Uh, and and Apple is the distant third on the smart home adoption in terms of HomeKit versus things that are Lex compatible. One of the things that I've been looking at this past week as I've been working on an article that, that we're going to publish on how these things stack up is also the ease of setting up these kinds of, of light switches and light bulbs and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know. In terms of, of enabling an Alexa skill, it's really simple, and you can do it all by voice, all without having to interact with the app. You can just say, Alexa, enable the Philips Hue skill, and it does. And then you say, Alexa, discover devices, and it finds your Philips Hue bulbs, and you're off and That's running. cool. It really is. With HomeKit, we, we have to scan barcodes, or we have to uh, scan the eight-digit number code on a product, which is invariably always hidden when it's plugged in, so you can't actually do that nicely. You have to look for a sticker in the box kind of thing. And Apple's working on resolving this using NFC pairing for HomeKit. And we saw it at CES, there was one device that promised it was going to ship with NFC pairing for HomeKit, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they weren't able to demonstrate it at the time at the booth because, well, it's CES. (laughs) So these things are all getting better. And in terms of Google setting up a skill like this or enabling a device like this, it's kind of a deep dive through the Google Assistant app which is a little bit weird because there's the Google Assistant app, but there's also Google Home. And Google Home is for managing your Chromecasts and also the the smart speakers, but the Google Assistant is where you manage these sorts of skills that you want to add to it. So it's it's like Google hasn't quite got it all put together yet in terms of trying to figure out which side of these two things you work across, two separate apps, um, at least from the iOS side, from the Android side, that's a little more fluid, but not by much. The thing that I'm looking for is is really what's the easiest in terms of experience for the end user to, to manage these things. You know, Do you, I, I don't enjoy finding eight-digit barcode, eight-digit codes on stickers inside products. Um, having to install an application first in order to make a device work and then having to add it to HomeKit after that seems like an extra kind of step that Amazon has so far addressed and Google has not yet gotten there on.
0: Yeah, uh, that could be something that could easily be added with software update to HomePod. Um, I, I think that, that smart home accessories are still in the um, kind of like um, uh, very early stages where it doesn't really matter. I,
1: I agree that the smart home devices are very early, that all of these things are still very young, but it's, it's an early days, but it's also a race is on kind of thing because You know, Amazon is out in the lead, and Google was at CES trying to show everyone that they were ready to and that they were going to overtake Amazon. And Apple's biggest move, which was doing software authentication so that the hardware Mm -hmm. chip was no longer required, uh, has yet to pay the dividends necessary. And at CES, a lot of the vendors that I spoke with were not even aware that that (laughs) change had been made.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: That 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 they could go ahead and add HomeKit compatibility to their product without having to retool their whole design was something that they weren't aware of, and so I I was almost spending half the show being the Apple evangelist, going through and saying, you know, if you check out developer.apple.com, you can take this thing that you've made and update your firmware, and it will become HomeKit compatible. No, are you kidding? No, really, you can. That's impossible. That's that's they want the chip. No, they don't want the chip anymore. It's six months old. And here's an interesting question for you. It, if it hasn't penetrated then apple isn't doing that word it here's an interesting question for you
0: with with homepod technically apple is releasing its first homekit accessory because it not only controls homekit but it also
1: but it lives within the app as adjusting volume and do you see real, yeah.
0: apple making more homekit accessories to solve this problem of just idiot manufacturers and and third party vendors that don't even know what's going on in the industry
1: this is a really good question. I wish that they would. You know, one of the things that Amazon does is Amazon's tried to start moving in messaging and calling features into Alexa. Uh, they've got drop-in as a function where you can just simply drop in on, on someone who has decided to allow drop-ins mm-hmm. from you as a contact. They've got messaging so you can message to both the speaker and to the app. Um, they're, they're sort of aiming at... What happens after the smartphone loses dominance?
0: Drop-in sounds like the worst idea ever.
1: Drop-ins does sound, well, I mean, this is Amazon <laughs> testing things out, right? But the messaging features, they, they abstract the importance of the phone away, right? They The calling features, you can still use it on your phone, but it also works with the voice-first speaker. So you now have a messaging system that works across your home and your mobile, and it does so seamlessly. It's they're 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 not aiming at the smartphone as the platform. They're aiming sure, at yeah. the post smartphone platform. Which is, is an approach you've got to give them some credit for at least trying to think through.
0: <laughs> Drop in just reminds me of I remember No, no. There were.
1: I know you don't like drop There was. There was a resistant to it, but there was a game uh, for.
0: It was a command and conquer game, I believe, for Xbox 360 when the Kinect first came out, and people were trying to think of things they could do with the Kinect and the camera and all that. And so the command and conquer game had uh, Kinect integration that after you won an online match in multiplayer, it turned on your Kinect camera to let you taunt the other person. You can imagine how poorly that went. (laughs) Oops.
1: No. No. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, cameras are their yeah. own
1: bag of problems,
0: right? They really are.
1: They they very much are. And I have a product that is an interesting one that I picked up at CES. It is a Amazon Alexa-enabled camera. So it's, it's a device that connects to your TV but also has a camera. And it's for video conferencing and things like this. But uh, it also uniquely has uh, the ability to air- receive AirPlay video. So you can That's mirror cool. from a phone or a Mac to it. So um, I'll be talking about that later on on the uh, site. I'll review that. One of the cool things that Alexa does that I think Apple needs to take into consideration it would help them in terms of deciding to make more Mm -hmm. or sell more into the house kind of thing is look at where all of the things that Alexa has gone in terms of products that it's integrated in. It's integrated into the Echo B4 thermostat. It's integrated into the first alert, alert smoke and carbon monoxide detectors. You know, And the idea of these products is that you're supposed to have a thermostat in your house, maybe two if you've got a zone system. You're supposed to have a smoke detector in each bedroom and in the common living areas. And so now you've suddenly got Alexa all throughout the house. And that doesn't mean just that you can kick stuff off from one and have it go whole house audio, but it also means that you can message between them. So instead of shouting across the house or shouting from one floor to another in a two-story single-family house, you can use it as a whole house intercom, which goes back to an idea that people were doing in the late 70s. But now it becomes a lot mm-hmm. easier and a lot simpler and and actually useful. You know, should Apple have HomePods in every room? Should Apple have a HomePod mini that works in multiple rooms for this kind of inter- inter-house messaging?
0: I have wondered about that. And I think that maybe the solution is to allow some level of Siri integration over Bluetooth with third-party speakers that uh, works a little more naturally than it does now. Um, or maybe even, because Siri's all done server-side, you could have a handshake on Apple servers, maybe let third-party manufacturers sell speakers that can access Siri, and maybe that's how you address this $50 Amazon Echo problem that they're not going to address with a $350 HomePod, that's for sure if they want to compete with those devices of course. Now, maybe they don't want yeah. to compete with it. maybe they don't care.
1: Right, but it's certainly they're they're watching them and taking a look at what those things can do and what the, the what they ought to consider doing. You know, for example, the both the Alexa and the Google Assistant are able to recognize different voices and separate out, you know, if I add a reminder and my kid adds a reminder, whose whose calendar does that reminder go to? Right? And they're able to work that out. And they're also able to respectfully, you know, manage yeah. which ones they announce with, right? Which ones that, so so my reminders and my, my to-dos don't get read aloud to someone else, for example. So, there's, there's stuff at work there for managing multiple users that Apple is traditionally not that great at, right? In terms of Mac, yeah, Mac has multiple accounts, but your iPhone is your personal iPhone. Your iPad is your personal iPad. And it works for that one person but a homepod device is a device that lives in the home among multiple people and it looks like at launch from the refinery 29 people their experience with it that uh, only the person who sets up homepod on their iCloud account will be able to send text set up reminders and get calendar phone notifications via voice you know google home and amazon echo recognize different voices and provide personalized content accordingly
0: yeah that's i mean that's not good i'm not going to i'm not going to defend it it needs to be fixed and they will they're going to have multiple user support for that and and i would imagine that even multi-user support like for example for face id on at the very least on the ipad should be coming too
1: yeah you know the 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 issue with multiple users on iPads is when you have different apps installed you know so now you're you you've divided up the storage even more yeah it's well. it's a very weird thing it's one of those things where you remember the nextbit robin phone the android phone from a few years ago the, the next bit Robin's big claim to fame was the idea that they would offload apps to the cloud and download them on demand as needed. And iOS does that sort of now in terms of managing space. The If you're doing multiple accounts on an iOS device, you almost need to be able to run your apps from the cloud.
0: I don't know. I mean, they're shipping base iPads with 32 gigs now, so
1: just in order to preserve enough space locally.
0: Yeah, and I remember back in, I think it was 2009, um, yeah. the Wall Street Journal had a story about the iPad before it was announced. And apparently one of the early concepts that Apple toyed around with, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, maybe it was something that was never going to see the light of day or whatever, but they viewed the iPad as one device that the whole family would share. And they, the original version of the iPad that they were testing internally, supposedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, had an v- early version of Face ID that recognized the user when they picked it up and displayed their apps and their content, but it had cross-user capabilities. And one of the things that they messed around with, which sounds like an Apple thing to do because we've seen this on the Mac before, was sticky notes that you could stick on the screen digitally that would be a notification to somebody else like, hey, you know, don't forget to take out the garbage or something. You know, A mom could leave a message for her daughter or something like that. Um, so it's fun to look back you know, almost 10 years ago now and see the concepts that Apple was playing around with that didn't work either because the software wasn't there or the hardware wasn't there or just conceptually it didn't work. And then here it is coming back again that we may see that kind of stuff here in the near future. Uh, face ID on an iPad you know, is one of the rumors that came out this week and it's been around for a while now. It's expected that the iPad Pros at the very least this year are going to get Face ID. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they start to do multi-user support with Face ID and with the HomePod and how those things can play into one each other, whether Apple gets into the drop-in capabilities or, or home intercoms or what have you.
1: Yeah. Well, all things that I'm looking forward to. Now, the sound quality is, is still the selling point for this device, right? We're, as much as we're talking about everything else when Apple's talking about it, they're talking about it from the standpoint of if you like listening to audio in the home, right. this is the best way to do it without getting into crazy audio file receivers and stuff.
0: Me neither. I'm, I'm excited.
1: I can't wait to get a listen to it. One of the cool things about it, and one of the things that, that really makes, makes sense for me for that market, is the idea that um, HomePod is going to support Flack audio files. And Flack, if you don't know is a license-free, open-source encoding for high-resolution audio. It's it's an uncompressed audio format. It's a lossless audio format. And mm-hmm. in the audio format list for support for HompCod, Hump, it's tucked in there, and it says that it supports FLAC. It says... Uh,
0: but, but iTunes doesn't.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But... Um, H-E-A-C, A-C, protected AAC from the iTunes store, MP3, MP3 VBR, variable bitrate, which is actually what we use with the podcast here, Uh, Apple Lossless, AIFF, which is uncompressed waveform and wave, and FLAC, and FLAC is there. And I knew people who, gosh, back in the dawn of time, 2005, were encoding every CD they got, and then also eventually the Super Audio CDs and the DVD audio discs in FLAC, and they did that because they knew that flack would never get any worse and it would never get any better it was perfect copy of the digital recording on the disc and that they could then down convert for whatever format they needed so there were people who had the flack rip and then would down convert for mp3 and then later down convert for aac and then later down convert for aac lossless and uh you know now to be able to play that FLAC directly through the home pod is the most faithful way of having the exact audio representation of that original signal.
0: Speaking of down-converting, can I go on a little rant here? Please. I went to the DJI event this week. They announced the new Mavic Air. It's, I was going to uh, get to
1: that. We were going to talk about your hands-on experience there.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, it's a cool product. Um, I, I don't see a need for it personally because I already have a Mavic Pro and a Spark. But if you're on the market for a tiny foldable drone uh, and the Spark is not enough for you, then... Get the Mavic Air. The Mavic Pro, I don't even know why it's still in the lineup. It's like outdated now. It has like one feature that's better than the Mavic Air, and the Mavic Air is better in every other way. Anyhow, so I go to this event, take a bunch of photos, you know, interview the folks, get my hands on with it, whatever, take a bunch of video. And we've got our video guys who handle stuff for us, they edit it together, and we're going to have something up here this afternoon. And uh, they say, shoot everything in 4K, 60 frames per second. And I have an iPhone 10. The the video guys, right? Yes, correct. Um, So I shoot in 4K, 60 frames per second. I never had a problem before because I had an iPhone SE. And that records 4K and it worked great. I have an iPhone 10 now. And that records everything in H.265, the HVEC format, which works fine on the iPhone, but doesn't really work anywhere else. So I was just trying to do the most basic stupid thing. I just wanted to be able to take my videos and put them in Dropbox to share with the video guys so that they can edit the videos. And it turns out if you got a dozen videos of a minute or two in length, and you try to do anything with them, (laughs) it just doesn't work. Like, It has to convert the video file, and the conversion on the phone takes forever. I had literally 11 files on there, the longest one was three minutes long, most of them were like 10 to 15 seconds, just video clips I shot while I was there. I tried to airdrop it to my Mac. Well, I tried to upload it direct to Dropbox first, but that didn't work. I tried to airdrop it to my Mac, and I had to go through a conversion process to take it from the H.265 that it recorded it into H.264 that would be more compatible with everything on my Mac, because it does that before it transfers it. Why? I don't know. Okay, fine. And it would just sit there, and this this little Pac-Man would just go slowly, slowly, slowly. And if I let my screen time out, then it would just cancel the conversion. So I had to go into settings to make it so that my screen wouldn't lock. And then, of course, it was draining my battery, so I plugged it in. And even then, it still crashed. I could not get them to airdrop. I was getting error messages. I was getting everything else. Finally, the only way I could get these videos off my phone... Again, it wasn't like I was shooting a 15-minute-long Epic here or anything like that. Um, the, The way I finally got these videos off my phone was I had to... Plug my phone into my Mac via USB to lightning cable. Open the Photos app, which is just straight garbage, by the way, on the Mac. What
1: what, what year is this, Neil, that you're telling us? (laughs)
0: Right, yeah. Here I am in 2018. I have to do all this. Had to copy the files over. It took took probably 45 minutes for them to copy over. I'm, I'm assuming the conversion at that point was being done by the Mac and not the phone. Um, and that was why it didn't, like, crash out or whatever. But, I mean, I, I couldn't believe that I had to go through all these steps just to get a video off my phone. Now, this is not necessarily Apple's problem per se. I mean, it, it reflects poorly on their products and, and the fact well, that the experience went as well. This is an early way.
1: days problem, right? Right, because that's the, where, the, the same two, thing with the H two six five is an early days. We've had the codec for about two years. Apple adopted it in late 2017, and... So it's going to take a while for everyone to get on board with good encoding.
0: Yeah. I should be able to transfer it much easier. Technically, the file size should be smaller than it was before. But it has to. for some reason, it has to convert it to get it to my Mac over AirDrop. Why, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know. And I've experienced some similar things with uh, photographs that were taken on the 8 Plus and trying to use them elsewhere. You know, it, I get messages all the time saying this photo was taken on a different device and and needs to be converted like i just want to use the photo guys you know
0: (laughs) it's it's a shame because uh you know obviously h265 is better obviously USB C is better these things are better but they you know
1: early days early early days yep you know and i had a ton of experiences with video at the show at ces by the way i was trying to do videos to get them up on the site and, and pass them to our video guys who first of all were very depressed that i only have an iphone 6 and not not the fanciest newest that can shoot 4k and uh but it didn't turns out it didn't even matter because i was shooting videos and getting interviews and in the end we were only able to get a couple of them up because i could not manage to upload to them from the show
0: yeah like you say early days you know it's it's a
1: bandwidth was killing
0: it's yeah, a, it's a it. it's a small thing in the grand scheme of things but it was frustrating but yes the mavic air is cool 800 bucks folds up smaller than the mavic pro um better gimbal how small is it uh, the, the two-dimensional footprint, if you were to have it laying down, like on the the space it would take up on a table, is a, a little bit bigger than an iPhone X, so not that big. Uh, the, that is not big at the, all. They, uh, DJI did the presentation. I mean, I guess everybody apes Apple's presentations these days, but it was funny the degree to which they did it. And so they had to do it there, greater- there have
1: been books published repeatedly <laughs> on – and there, there must be like five of these things. How to present like Steve Jobs.
0: Yeah. So they did uh, three key things that they wanted the product to accomplish before the guy took it out of his pocket, just like the first iPhone. And then he took it out of his pocket, but then he took another one out of his pocket and then he took a third one out of his pocket to show how small it was. So the dude's wearing cargo pants. He was wearing a vest. He was wearing a big (laughs) utility vest. He had a Scotty vest. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But I mean, it is small. It's not like you're not going to put it in your jeans pocket, but it's small. It's nice. Um, and I think it, you know, hits a good price point and has um, pretty good stuff to offer. You know, it's, I, I, I'm, I, I think DJI is doing great stuff. And that's one of the reasons that GoPro had to exit the market because they can't compete.
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, the, the the action cam is an interesting thing. But when everyone's doing an action cam, it it becomes a little harder. And the idea of the drone cam, well, you know, you're a camera manufacturer, not a drone maker. And it becomes hard to become one of those.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. You, first of all, drones are a very small market. Second of all, you you have to figure out what the use is and what you're going to do for your user to make it better than anyone else's, including DJIs. And I, those things come down to better video, you know, right? Better results, or better controllability. You know, one of the things that I like is there's an MIT experiment. I think it's MIT uh, that shows. Drones acting in concert, where instead of just one out there, there are multiples, and they're all aware of each other, and they're able to fly in formation right. and do things like that, and the ability to control the swarm, or the ability to have a swarm intelligently be aware of where where each one is and and fly accordingly, you know, the the command and control software for flying these things is is difficult. Everyone who buys one for Christmas or gets a Christmas present for these crashes it in the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah, so. There's a lot of room for improvement in how do we make it so you don't crash right away.
0: Well, and DJI has done a lot of stuff in that department with varying degrees of success. Um, I like the Spark a lot. I wish that the motion controls were more reliable They're like they're like 60, 70% of the way there that it's good enough that you'll use it, but not totally reliable. I've never crashed it, so that's something. It just doesn't always respond to what I want it to do with my hands. But the Mavic Air does that as well, but it also has these cool autopilot modes. There are two what they call quick shot modes. So one is it takes off and it does this sweeping camera shot of you and then comes back. And the other one is it has this uh, capability to do a. a, uh, a 32 megapixel spherical panoramic photo, and so what it does is it combines that capability with the autonomous flight capability and, and person tracking capability, and so it does what they call a boomerang. It goes up into the air, and then wa- it maintains its position, and then it takes a 360 degree um, shot. And then it flies back down and then it cuts it into a video where it does this wild thing where it shows you and then it goes up and then it turns into a globe and turns it into like the world around you. And then it goes back to the normal. Oh,
1: the globe thing was a Google thing that was from a few years ago. Well, this turns it into like an automated.
0: You don't even have to do any work. It just like creates it and it looks really neat. It got a lot of like oohs and ahs from the crowd.
1: I'm always careful because, you know, there, there are things that are great in demo but are are weak in practice and actual utility, yeah. you know, it, you're, you're going to see 10 of these globe videos and you're going to be tired. Of right. That's right. Yeah. right?
0: Now you're right. It was neat though. And, and I, I think that the, the other quick shot, the one where it just kind of swoops out and then comes back in um, is cool because that's the kind of thing that if you were, even if you're a professional drone pilot, you have to get, try a few times to get it right. And the fact that this just kind of does it on its own and combines with object and person tracking and all that stuff. And, you know, you can throw this thing in the air and just let it fly behind you and, and, and capture footage of you. It's pretty neat. Cool. Very cool. I'm
1: I'm so glad you talked about this one. I, I was trying to go see them at, at CES and they, we were going to have a time to go and meet and talk. And it was just so difficult to get to G, DJI's booth. You know they're they're over in the South mm-hmm. Hall, and to make it over there and get down to it's just a nightmare sometimes. So that was one of the ones that I did not manage to get to at the show, but
0: I'm glad you were able to make it to their presentation. Yeah, yeah, they're Sounds they're, like they're, they're doing some anyway. prequel cool stuff as a company. And I always enjoy seeing what they're what they've got coming next. Yeah. Now,
1: small tidbit that we're just going to talk about for ten seconds: uh, Apple has way more Lexus RX, RX 450h vehicles in the fleet right. now. I bring this up because we've been covering the car story since the very beginning, and I just want to make sure we don't lose track of that. They they originally had three Lexus SUVs driving around as a part of their self-driving work, but they now have 27, according to the California Department of Motor Vehicles. So they've got these these vehicles with LiDAR. They've got these vehicles with radar arrays around the front and rear bumpers and cameras around the perimeter, and they are working on autonomous vehicle technology.
0: It's ramping up. I don't know where it's going to go. They're still well behind the competition. And Waymo and, and Uber have way more.
1: <laughs> isn't, isn't the word that Uber is going to have actual self-driving cars in service yeah. for passengers yeah. so, next year? Yeah.
0: Uh, this is a problem that Apple has had with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Data collection, um, while trying to be respectful of user privacy, is difficult. And if you don't have enough data then you're not going to be able to compete in creating autonomous systems. And with only 27 vehicles on the road, Apple's certainly stepping it up. But, um, you know, maybe that DD Chuxing, or however you pronounce that uh, company, the Chinese Uber, um, is their play there to collect more data, a lot more people in China, a lot more. I'm
1: going to mispronounce it too, but I'm going to take a stab at it. It's Didi be, Shijing. No, I don't know.
0: Uh, but that might be their play to get some data that they know that Google and Uber aren't getting. I, I, hard to say. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. I'm excited. And and you can never count Apple out, but they're going to have a hard time catching up with these companies that have been doing it for years. It's like the map situation, you know. Um, I saw something a few weeks ago about the outlines of buildings that Google Maps has captured to great detail and, like, where all the trees are and everything. And,
1: the uh, the fan blades in the vents on the air conditioning systems on top of yeah, roofs yeah and 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 we're yeah. not
0: talking street view and we're not talking satellite view we're talking
1: but well, but also the interior well, yeah. mapping, right? the the interior mapping of malls and office buildings and and hospitals is it exists in Google and it's not yeah they're just in
0: Apple. years ahead of them and uh, you know there are areas where Apple's years ahead of the competition certainly uh, touchscreens were a place where they uh, it took everybody a while to catch up Face ID right now is a great example of it. Um, but I think that, uh, mapping is is going to continue to be a problem for Apple because of that. And I think that, uh, the car situation is also going to continue to be a problem for him because of it.
1: I'm, I'm going to tie all these yes. stories together and you're going to be impressed okay. with how I do it. We've talked about smart speakers and smart assistants. We've talked about the car. We've talked mm-hmm. about mapping at the show. We saw two Garmin products that were Amazon Alexa enabled Mm -hmm. for the car. One was just simply the interface, talk to Alexa in the car, and you say, Alexa, ask Garmin for directions and navigate. And the other was the same kind of thing, but with a dashboard camera integrated. And since the show, we've seen Anchor, that's Mm -hmm. A-N-K-E-R, introduce a product called Rove or ROAV, Vivo, or Viva, which is the ROAV product. It's a car charger that also has Bluetooth and has Alexa in it. And you can use it to ask for directions and navigation from both Google Maps and Waze. Pretty cool. And so now we have smart speakers and smart assistants in the car and mm-hmm.
0: maps. <laughs> there you Put go. Put it
1: all in a new package. Settle. <laughs> and, you know, I, I like CarPlay, I do. And I use Apple Maps in CarPlay because that's the default and the only one that's there. It's not bad. And... It works very well 99% of the time. If I'm stuck in traffic somewhere in a city that I don't know, uh, yes, I'm pulling out ways. Would I like the Anchor Rove product or the Garmin product? Yes. If I'm ever in a car that's not my own, if I'm in a rental car, if I'm traveling, I want to be able to plug in and have that kind of nav functionality and the voice assistant functionality in seconds. And the idea of doing it like that really seems to me like a smart idea.
0: Yeah, I can see that.
1: I am, I am tempted to – I think we're going to try and, and get those products and review them from the standpoint of how well they do, do they work with iOS and what's the experience compared to CarPlay. That sounds good to me. Cool. I just got <laughs> editorial approval. There we go. We'll be doing that. Um, that's what I have. Coming up next, we're going to have an interview with some digital signal processing experts. That's audio engineers, audio experts, to talk a little bit about – What are the kinds of things that they're doing with DSPs, and what are the kinds of things that they suspect Apple's doing with DSPs and beamforming in HomePod? Welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast, and I'm with Matt Hines, who is, uh, gosh, senior product manager at uh, Isotope, maker of products like RX6 and uh, Spire, the audio recorder. So Matt, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you work on at Isotope.
2: Sure thing. Um, so we're an audio software and hardware company. And in terms of the hardware, I think that's, that's what's really interesting right now. It's a wireless audio recording device. Um, but our, our pedigree in the, the RX software that I know you guys use on, on the podcast Uh, sort of 17 years worth of research and machine learning all wrapped up in something that can reduce noise and other kinds of background interruptions. It's used a lot on television, film, radio, and music production too. Um, So we kind of took all of that technology that we have and that we know well, uh, wrapped it up in a sort of a DSP platform um, inside a piece of hardware that actually records audio. So it's sort of like a little portable recording studio in your pocket that uh, sounds quite unlike whatever environment you might choose to use it in. Like I'm sat in an airport right now. You could be in the park, um, you know, just recording music wherever you go. So uh, that's a little bit about about what we do. Um, but as I mentioned, there's a, a wireless audio specialty in there, which is, is new and exciting.
1: And I won't ask you too much about that if it's not released yet. But um, I, you know, I got to say, we're very interested in all of these kinds of things. <laughs> One of the things that we've been talking about a lot this week is, of course, Apple is finally preparing to take pre-orders and begin to ship their HomePod product that they've been talking about since Mm -hmm. the middle of last summer. And, you know, we've been trying to figure out what they're accomplishing there and and a little bit about how they're doing it. So can you speak to uh, the the science behind what we think HomePod is doing?
2: Yeah, I I certainly can. And I think if you, if you go to the, the Apple website, they actually uh, reveal a little bit more than I think some of the other, other manufacturers are, are doing. I think perhaps because they're doing a little bit more than some of the other uh, smart speaker manufacturers are. So um, they have this wonderful picture on their website of the, the interior of the speaker. Because, of course, from the outside, it's a very simple, elegant plain design. Um, but if you think about the environments in which a user typically would have music playing or might make a phone call in the home... Um, You might have uh, a speaker set up. I mean, I have my TV today. Um, But as you move about the home, depending on where you are closer or further away from the speaker, the sound will certainly change in your home environment. Apple have a bunch of technology in there that is supposed to counteract that. And no matter where you are in the room or in several rooms... Uh, offer you music that just sounds the same absolutely everywhere. Um, and then they also have this um, really, really smart microphone array. Um, I think they have six microphones all the way around the inside of the home HomePod. Um, so if you think about sort of FaceTime or other kinds of video chat that you, you may be doing as a family or as a, a single user, uh, you can now do that entirely hands-free. Um, and I mean I don't know if uh, either either topic sort of the the video calling microphone features or the uh, the way the immersive audio works is um, you know which one do you want to dive into first as
1: oh, it were one of the things that really captured my attention was their ability to discern the shape of the room and adjust for it you know this is this is something that I had seen for years on uh, you know, middle to high end receivers where you'd put a microphone in your listening position and it would play white noise through all the speakers and then adjust them accordingly, right? Through, yeah. uh, you know, things like like an old Onkyo or a Denon or those kind of things. Um, but the idea of getting that in a small affordable speaker and having it account for reflections from the walls and, uh, you know, account for, for echoes and distance and things like that to the listening position was without a complex setup is something that I think
2: is kind of unprecedented. Uh, yeah, so it, it, I think to the degree that they've pulled it off, yes, definitely um, unprecedented. You, you've seen a few other companies try um, versions of this technology, but certainly not uh, this much of the technology in a consumer package. Um, and actually, I mean, the way it works is, is fascinating. So um, I know they trumpet on their website that the, the HomePod uses the AA processor. Uh, now that processor... Uh, was used in the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6S. So it's incredibly powerful. Um, and you might wonder, why on earth do they need something that could run an entire iPhone and everything an iPhone could do just to run one apparently simple speaker? Um, so for folks who are interested, if you if you head to the website and I can sort of talk you through the, the image that they display, you'll see on the inside, um, there's what they call tweeters all the way around, pointing in every direction. Um, and those are really the, the speakers you know, you're, if you're used to a typical speaker setup, you might have one tweeter pointed at you per speaker, sometimes two. Uh, well, they have one pointed in every direction, 360 degrees. Then they also have phones, again, pointed in, in every single direction. And the way that those work uh, deliver that sort of tuning effect, um, well, if you think about the the tweeters, they, those are the, the speakers. Um, so you have... Uh, these seven speakers playing audio in every single direction, and they know what information is passing through them right You know they know the sound, the frequency balance of the of the song that is playing or the sound that is playing through the speakers um, now, as that sound shoots out in three hundred and sixty degrees of direction, of course it will hit surfaces, it will bounce off walls, ceilings, floors, especially hard or reflective surfaces. you know a carpet or a couch might be damping, but imagine like a wooden floor or a plaster wall right um, in the
1: old days we used to place the hi-fi speakers in the corners of the room to get a good stereo image right e-
2: exactly and then you you turn your head and, and suddenly the music sounds different or the bass is lost or you might be arguing with your family about uh the tv being too loud or too quiet just because your listening position will affect that
1: right and you know so, the sound would bounce off if we place the speaker too close to the wall it would bounce off the hard surface of the wall too
2: Exactly, and it, it creates all sorts of problems. Um, you know, everything from dialogue, intelligibility, in TV shows to, you know what, the music is supposed to sound good. Um, so I think what they have done here is they have a microphone array, which is not simply for capturing the sound of your voice when you're doing a Skype call or a FaceTime call.
1: Um, but
2: in fact, it's actually... Listening, as, as music plays, as music plays through those tweeters that point in every single direction, uh, obviously the microphones are able to receive a, a response from each of those directions. Um, and obviously I can't speak to the exact code that they're using, but they do say publicly that they're running um, active DSP management on each of these seven tweeter channels. Now DSP is digital signal processing, so really it's just running uh, algorithms. It's running code that's changing the balance of the frequencies uh, discreetly for each tweeter. Um, so you might imagine a, a sort of a generic use case that I could imagine um, Apple uh, taking advantage of is if you have the home pod in the corner and one of the tweeters is pointing towards the corner, uh, the microphone that's pointed in that direction is also going to get quickly at the reflections coming back in that direction. It might very quickly be able to establish that, hey, um, audio coming from over here to the left is bouncing back quite quickly. Uh, so there's a little bit of bass buildup. The, the bass frequencies take so long to travel through the air that they're reflecting back upon themselves. And it'll send that information to the speakers pointed in that direction. And uh, then the home part is smart enough to know, hey, even though I'm playing the same song through these seven tweeters, um, when I play the audio through, say, tweeters number one and two, uh, turn the bass frequencies down a little bit. Or maybe turn the volume down of, of those tweeters just a little bit. And it uses this uses this active management, this sort of always listening idea, uh, to tune the sound of every single speaker pointed in every single direction, such that as you move through the room or move through the space, the music just sounds completely immersive. I mean, I think that's their sort of main message here with the speaker is how immersive the experience is. Because if you have speakers pointed every direction, being actively managed, and it's sort of like having a, a mixing engineer at a live show working on your behalf uh via software it doesn't matter where you are in the room the bass should sound consistent the snare drum the, the music you know that the strings on the high end everything should just sound nice and even um and it i mean it, it's really uh, very clever stuff uh those kinds of technologies, I think, as I mentioned earlier, have been around. Um, it's not as if they themselves are new, uh, but certainly, and I, I won't name names, if you look at some of the smart speakers out there, I, I can tell you that were you to break them apart, they are not doing quite as much necessarily as is going on
1: here. Would it be fair to say that what's new here is is these technologies being implemented in a speaker at this price point for a wealth of people to set up easily
2: um I, I there's definitely some truth in that i mean you know i was playing uh, the other day with a, a recording device that was doing this this 360 audio capture and it cost well over a thousand dollars simply because of the microphones pointed in all these different directions right hmm. um you know high grade components do do cost money um so have been able to do it uh well certainly in a relatively affordable package, uh, but just, just tying everything together because, of course, all I've described so far is playing music and having a consistent listening experience. But think about how much how much more you can do if the microphones work in that uh, that smart way. They use uh, what's called beamforming technology to understand where you are in the room. So not only are they tuning the sound of the room when you play music, uh, but if you are doing a, a, a voice call or something like that, or even if you're just speaking, you know, hey Siri, what's the weather today? Or hey Siri, set an alarm for nine o'clock. Um, the microphones are pointed in every direction, so they'll pick you up crystal clear. But they're smart enough to know directional information. Uh, so if I, let's say, I'm on the phone with you, right, um, right now, and I put you on speakerphone. If I walk two feet away, you're not going to be able to hear me very well. Uh, but if I turn, then suddenly you might. Well, with the, the HomePod, I'm free to to move about the space because each of these microphones is actively listening. And, and as I get uh, more towards one particular direction, the HomePod will rely a little bit more on that microphone's energy and, and turn some of the other ones down. So it's also actively managing background noise, too. Um, so, I, you know, it it is, it is pretty special. I think there's a lot of smart speakers out there, and some of them are obviously uh, e-commerce solutions more so, you know, Empowering you to to buy more stuff from them uh, by tying you into to various shopping accounts or, or services, um, and you know this seems this seems more sort of the uh, the solution for the creative or the the consumer who wants to a listen to music or. You know, you can use AirPlay. So let's say you watch a video, but the audio happens to be coming through a HomePod. I think it is more about the, the end user experience, just uh, someone who wants to enjoy something uh, creative. And I think they even say on their website, you can have these all throughout the home and they just hook up automatically. And uh, then instead of one smart speaker, you have them all over the place uh, for even better results. It's sort of like the uh, the network effect is, is that much more powerful.
1: Let me ask, so... You know, Neil and I were talking earlier about how they're using this A8 processor, which, which you commented, seems like a very strong processor for a very small set of features. What What are they using this thing for?
2: Um, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of the active sort of DSP management that I mentioned, the listening to the directionality of the sound happening in the room, whether it's your speaking voice or reflections of the audio that the home pod is itself playing, um, you know, that's running a lot of uh, processing power. Uh, and, and I say that as someone who builds audio software, um, to do things, really powerful things using that kind of analysis, it's typically done in, with what we call offline processing. So a software like RX, for instance, uh, most of the tools will say, hey, give me the audio, let me look at it. Let me think about it. And 10 to 20 seconds later, here's the result of that audio processing. You know, the, the noise is gone. Hmm. Uh, well, that's not much good if, if you just bought a speaker. You don't expect to wait around for things to happen, um, especially if you're on a phone call. It just will be instant. So, if you will, uh, a lot of the processing power is simply running the code that does this smart analysis, the the, the tuning, if you will, of of the room, of the microphones. Um, And, you know, we shouldn't forget it it is running an operating system, too. Um, It connects to HomeKit, so it can do all the the Philips hues and the Nest thermometers, uh, not thermometers, um, central heating, and uh, all of that kind of stuff, Um, as well as doing everything Siri can do and and everything AirPlay can do. Um, So there's going to be some amount of the chip that they're using just to deliver the Apple features you're used to, and then the rest is probably just making sure you don't ever have to think about where the speaker is. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, some expensive hi-fi systems, you get that little tuning thing, right, where you sit in the room and you play sounds and it calibrates. Well, this isn't some, you don't have to do that, I think, with a home HomePod. I think that the, they do that for you. You don't have to think about it. So uh, that that kind of thing requires a lot of a lot of processing power. Yeah, it's it's
1: one of those sort of complex engineering problems. That they make look deceptively simple, isn't it?
2: I think that's that's the beauty of uh, the Apple products. Um, you know, it it takes an incredible amount of engineering effort, of design effort, um, you know, hand in hand to deliver something that seems so simple, seems so so elegant. Uh, and I think oftentimes, and I can speak from my own personal experience too, uh, you'll work on something for one, two, three or more years, and it ships, and and you know, people love the product, but they don't necessarily have an appreciation for just how many hoops you had to jump through to give them that experience, to give them that, that piece of delight as they listen to music that fills their home. You know, that if you haven't experienced that, it is very, very different to just turning on a high fi system with one speaker on the left and one speaker on the right. Um, you know, people call it magic, even it's sort of where things are headed. And uh, I mean, they announced it months ago, but, but I think you and I probably can both imagine they've been working on it for a, a lot longer than that, as well.
1: Almost certainly, uh, you know, I I used to make products as well, and the road to getting something anywhere close to release is is a bloody one, filled with all kinds of wars. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's almost a wonder that anything gets made at all.
2: I, yeah. And and then of course you, you go ship something fantastic and there's always the risk that people say, well, so what, you know, I could buy a, a speaker off the shelf, a Bluetooth speaker or even a smart speaker for $50. Why would I spend $350 or more on this? And, and that sort of misses the point, you know, they, they are not apples to apples, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> um, you know, you, you buy this, I think for the experience that it offers you uh, and, I think one of the things that's great about Apple products is that they, they do sell you those those experiences. Um, obviously that, that's functional too, don't get me wrong, but it's the I think the feeling you have while using it, which while it may not be for everyone, I think certainly has a, a very compelling place in, in the day and age that we all stream everything we do music or or film related. So
1: I wanna change it just a little bit. I wanna give you a chance to talk about Spire Studio.
2: Oh sure. So yeah, I'd be happy to.
1: You know, I, I had a chance to record and we actually recorded an episode using Aspire Studio early on, and um, I was quite impressed with it as a little piece of hardware. But just looking at it, it's 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 another one of those things that's deceptively simple. It looks very like a very nice product that records to the application. But tell me about some of the the challenges that you had to overcome and some of the things that were, were difficult in terms of engineering.
2: Sure. Um, if, if you think, whether you're a musician or not, uh, for, for folks who are listening, if you think about what it typically takes to record and produce a song that you might hear on the radio, of course, you need musicians, you need instruments, um, and then you need microphones to record those instruments and, and cables to go with those microphones and devices to take that signal from a, an analog signal to a digital signal in a computer and then more software to process it in the computer. It's a a very time consuming process um, and B a very complex process. You know, even as everything becomes democratized and everyone get it can get access to these tools, it hasn't necessarily meant that everyone's able to get the same results as you would with a top 40 song you hear on the radio. Um, so what what Spire tries to do is, well, it ties together the things you need to record. So there are places to plug your guitar or your keyboard in, for instance, or your microphones for your voice. Uh, it also has an onboard microphone behind which we do have DSP running, uh, not dissimilarly from the active uh, DSP management we mentioned with the HomePod. And there's internal storage. And in one sense, it's as simple as that. You plug instruments in, there's a microphone right on the front, uh, you press record and you're good to go. And of course people might say, well, so what? Studios can do that. Well,
1: yeah, I had a four-track tape cassette recorder, right? I can do that.
2: <laughs> it, exactly. I mean, that uh, you could do that, you know, thirty years ago. Um, but so what? What we've brought to the table with Spire is uh, a lot of uh, DSP intelligence. We we do things for you, so you don't have to think about it. So, uh, for instance, uh, plugging in microphones requires calibration. You have to set the levels. If you get it wrong, then you go play the perfect performance, but it's all distorted and clipped, and it sounds terrible. Um, Spire has a button right on the front. You you press the sound check button, and it sets the levels for you. So it actually listens to what you're doing, listens to your performance, and will correct for it. So right off the bat, there's no setup. You you just hit record. And the fact that you can just hit record and get your idea down immediately is something certainly folks are telling us out out in the field is exciting because it it used to be, I have an idea, I have a song. Let me go set everything up, which takes ten minutes, fifteen minutes, half an hour. Um, so that's certainly one aspect of what's special about the, the Spire product is the the algorithms uh, running behind the scenes just to make it sound as as good as it can. And again, that goes back to I uh, the company that, that makes the product being a software company for the past seventeen years. That that is a uh, pedigree. I mean, we won an Emmy for the, the software that we've we produced. Uh, but the other thing that's special about it um, and actually relates in some way to the HomePod is the fact that it's, it's a wireless solution. So I'll, I'll say very quickly, in, in layman's terms, when you play audio back wirelessly over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi on a wireless speaker, you are sending information that already exists so that information goes through the air in these little bursts of data and the speaker receives it and it receives it in these little packets and it will wait very s- small numbers of milliseconds until it has all the packets and it puts them back together and plays a continuous song. If ever there's an issue, uh, this is what folks will understand as an audio dropout or it, it sort of g- glitches, it does the, uh, 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 you know, it's kind of buffering. Um That tends not to happen when people stream audio wirelessly. But if you're playing, if I'm playing a guitar and singing right now, that information never existed before. So that information has to be converted into a wireless signal, sent through the air, and then stitched back together, uh, you know, on the receiving end. So for Spire, audio goes into the Spire. It's all recorded there. uh, But it's sent uh, wirelessly through the air to to the iPhone in, in near real time. It's an associated app that goes with that. And um, the fact is that there is latency required inherently in in encoding a signal, sending it via a wireless channel, and then decoding it on the other end. And the reason that no recording companies or um, companies who make recording equipment have been able to make these fully wireless recording products before is because that lag, that latency, is enough that a musician would notice. You know, if, if I play a note and then it takes half a second to hit my ears... That's an incredibly unnatural, uh, sort of out-of-body out, out of body experience. So Yeah, that's a digital uh, delay effect, to, right? Exactly. And, um, you know, you can use that creatively, but that's not what you want uh, for basic recording. So we were able to accomplish not just uh, the basic recording equipment with algorithms that do things intelligently for you, uh, but, again, a, a wireless flow. So you can sit down in your home and now enjoy recording the song you wrote on guitar and have it sound as good as a studio, ideally. Um, and again, you didn't have to go plugging in any wires. That, that's the key thing. If everything else, your, your GoPros, your home HomePods, your TVs, if everything's wireless, why is it that something made for musicians has to have a bunch of wires? You know, cables suck. Uh, I can wrap a cable up neatly, put it in my bag, pull it out, and it's, it's messed up again. Um, so, it, you know, it's a, it's a portable recording studio. Uh, It's been out, I think, now since September 27th. It's been out for a while. Um, Definitely a a lot of stuff online about it for folks who are interested. If you just Google Spire Studio, you'll you'll see what we're all about. Um, But all of those engineering challenges, just making Wi-Fi play nice with with audio, live audio recording, uh, making all of those algorithms work, essentially took us, I want to say, three and a half to four years. So it it is not, not trivial because, of course, if you just wanted to manufacture a microphone, well, you could do that in, you know, six months, let's say, and, and it's done. But that microphone won't get rid of background noise. It won't tune itself to your performance. It certainly won't do the live wireless recording stuff in quite the same way. I mean, you can have like wireless, like microphones for live performance, but that's a that's a different, you know, that's not a, a recording solution. Wow.
1: it's It's really an impressive achievement when you put it like that.
2: Uh, I, I would like to, to think so. Um, I mean, it's, it's not my achievement. It's the achievement, I think, of, of many. I just hope a, we'll work on it together. Um, it's definitely it's an exciting time to be alive because musicians will appreciate this. The music industry is, is slow-moving. We still think about tape machines and tube equipment as the holy grail of you know nostalgic, warm, sound like the Beatles, sound like Deep Purple, like the sounds of yesteryear are so hip even today half of the records released last year sounded like Motown records from the sixties. So given that we're so beholden to all of these old technologies and this, this idea of the good old days, um, I think it's about time that we brought a few of these, these new things to the, to the industry. Let people say, you know what? I don't need cables anymore. Why? That's stupid. Why should I have cables? You know, I don't have cables anywhere else in my life. So let me get rid of them here too. And, um, you know, the, the robots are not taking over, but they are helping.
1: <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot.
2: I, think when, I, I say that whenever people get scared of anything, machine learning, you know, they say, oh, but, well, what if what if it goes wrong? What if AI goes wrong? And, you know, listen, anything can go wrong. But um, I think if you if you appreciate the amount to which they can help in everyday life, it, it's it's pretty fantastic. And that extends not just to recording and things we do. Uh, for fun or the things we do for a living, um, you know, in a, in a fully professional studio and, and, and beyond. Definitely.
1: Well, thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate you joining me and uh, this has been excellent.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a, it was a pleasure. And I guess we, uh, we we're all about to go to the Apple store and find out what this thing is like in the flesh.
1: <laughs> yes. And, all my listeners, you guys out there should go ahead and check out Isotope. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. And uh, is there a direct URL for the Spire Studio?
2: Yeah, it's uh, Spire live. Super simple.
1: Perfect. Spire.live. dot live. Spire live. Thank you so much, Matt. Neil, that brings us to the end of episode 157. Where can people find you on the internet?
0: You can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L, and you can read my stuff at appleinsider.com.
1: I'm your host, Victor. We will be back next week with more Thank you so much. We'll see you then.